Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody, it's your furious five bruiser hold him nearly. That's right. I'm five of them. I'm a snake. I'm a monkey. I'm a bird. I'm uh what are the other ones? Grasshopper. Ooh, he's crazy, right? And then which one am I forgetting? I know I'm forgetting one. Ugh, because there's five. Hiya! Right? Everybody Very was good. kung fu fighting. Those Don't do the whole song, they'll sue us. Lightning. They'll sue us, Jake. They'll uh, sue it's us, 2008, please. and we got CeeLo on the soundtrack. <laughs> we got CeeLo because it's 2008. Fuck you. Have you done that? Does that make me crazy? <laughs> Probably Ooh. crazy. Wow, what happened to CeeLo, man? He was fucking on fire. Oh. He was a phoenix <laughs> rising up into the air for so long. Jake, what animal did I forget? I'm uh, there's the mantis, the viper, the of my favorite meme of 2020, monkey. <laughs> viper, mantis, monkey, crane, tiger. Yes, the tigress. How dare I forget what? the tigress? How could you? What? Voiced it's... by Angelina Jolie. What a cast. We'll get into it. Unbelievable cast. This might be one of the most stacked voice actor casts I've ever seen. Well, this in a was movie. peak DreamWorks and the yes. whole thing, Jeffrey Katzenberg. We've talked about we Jeffrey Katzenberg always comes up because he really was such a defining figure in uh 90s and 2000s children's movies. But like he as soon as like Robin Will which Robin Williams in Aladdin like sent a ripple throughout the entire like way animated movies are done. Everybody loved that. I remember <laughs> distinctly loving that is, is his whole sequel song when they first meet him. I, I mean, everybody was just like walking out, just being like thrilled. They put that Robin <laughs> Williams as the genie made the whole movie. Great. So uh, yeah, I totally get it. It's and uh, Katzenberg famously was kind of a dick to Robin Williams, but the point is the lesson, <laughs> the lesson of, Katzenberg from that era was like, you put celebrities in those roles. You get star power and you get, because no matter what's on screen, the adults will be like, holy fuck, that's Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> Which, yes, happened while I was watching the sequel. Lexi immediately got sucked into it. She's like, is that Gary Oldman? And all of a sudden she's <laughs> on the couch, dropped all of her plans for the afternoon and we watched the sequel together. It was really funny. But, it's uh, insane how they didn't even give Gary Oldman a script in the sequel. He just made up all <laughs> that stuff. Saying- about oh, a man. genocidal peacock. <laughs> and they were like, I guess it's in the movie. 
He's like, fire cannons now. No, 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 no. It was just like, he just goes crazy throughout Everyone! that whole thing. Everyone! <laughs> uh, but I will say this right here, right now. We are doing an episode on Kung Fu Panda. And uh, that's Jake. I set him up to be Poe, but he just started singing Kung Fu Fighting, and I'm not going to fault him for it, because it's a tale of a silo. Skadoosh. Hey, what's up there, Tiger Lily? It's me, Jack Black. Hey, I have a weight problem, but also a sensitive side. That's right. Well, this is the first time we really got to see his sensitive side in a film, interestingly enough, as he was this big, audacious, kind of screamy, crazy guy in so many movies up till now and a lot and also a lot bluer movies up till now. This is kind of the moment he changed and said, you know what, maybe, you know. I probably had kids by that point, I believe, and just was at the point where it's like, maybe I should do some some children's stuff. You know, he, I think he had maybe already done School of Rock, but still, uh, which I love, and I'd love to do an episode on that at some point. But either way, let me give the synopsis up top. Come on, we're already, we're four minutes in. I'm, I'm breaking our record. This is the earliest we've done a synopsis for the topic we're covering. Here it is. Uh, Kung Fu Panda is a computer animated wuxia comedy film produced by DreamWorks Animation and distributed by Paramount Pictures, directed by John Stevenson and Mark Osborne, starring Jack Black, Dustin Hoffman, Angelina Jolie, Ian McShane. Oh, so good, man. Love him. Uh, Deadwood. Come on. Seth Rogen, Lucy Liu, David Cross and Jackie Chan, among many others. But I mean, what a hell of a main cast. The film is set in a version of ancient China populated by anthropomorphic talking animals and revolves around a bumbling panda named Po, a kung fu enthusiast. When an evil kung fu warrior named Tai Lung is foretold to escape from prison, Po is unwittingly named the dragon warrior that was destined to defeat him. And uh, uh, the gush is simple on my end. I, I don't. I think. I don't think I saw this in the theater. I think I saw it at home. And just was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. I felt like it, it came off to me like um, a, a more of a... I think I just heard good things about it and, you know, finally just decided to throw it on on an afternoon or something like that. But it was definitely one of those movies where I instantly rolled my eyes at the, like, maybe trailer or movie poster when it first hit, thinking it was just going to be some cornball animated thing that was just super not for me. And then I think maybe word of mouth is what sent me to it. And it actually is one of those where it's like, oh, this is, like, way better than it has any right to be. This is fantastic and funny and the great story, tight. The Obviously, I've already gushed about the voice acting cast. Uh, it just... Really, really nice. Moves really well. Unexpected, too, I feel like. You don't think he's going to just be, like, incapable for almost the whole movie. And I always kind of like when they do that. You know what I mean? Kind of like a Karate Kid thing a little bit. Which mm -hmm. they actually do. They do the Karate Kid thing, by the way, in the third movie. But we'll get there. But still, Jake, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, and uh, what about you, Jake? You used the term better than it had any right to be. And I think that defines this movie yeah. really well. Because... Um, you know, this is a 2000s DreamWorks movie. We're talking Shrek. We're talking uh, Shark Tale. We're talking, uh, you know, monsters versus aliens. Though I will say I felt the same way about Shrek, where I was like, oh, this is like genuinely fantastic. I think I did see that in the theater, though. But that was I think I saw that in the theater because just seeing a fully CGI animated film was still like a big, cool novelty thing. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why I was just there for spectacle. And then I was like, actually, this is really funny. But anyways, what were you saying, Jake? But it has just so much heart and it has so much like of it's such a the first movie, especially is such a perfectly contained, like simple hero's journey tale. 
really well executed, especially for the era of CG animation. And um, it's kind of, uh, it, it was a massive hit. People all over the world saw it. This is a, you know, for our Gen Z listeners, this was part of their formative canon. This was in the DVD player. This was, you know, part of their childhood. And it's, uh, I just think it's kind of this dark horse franchise that, you know, less so than Shrek, less so than Toy Story, less so than, you know, any of the major Pixar things. But it just, it just like really nails its tone. It really nails. Um, some, it really nails some Kung Fu fucking oh fighting. Oh my dude. God. I didn't even get into the fight <laughs> choreography. The fight <laughs> choreography awesome. is insane. The, uh, is, I mean, in the first movie alone, um, Tai Lung's escape sequence is breathtaking in terms of like great superhero kind of style action. The bridge scene where uh, the Furious Five have to like take him down on that rope bridge is even that training, so dynamic. The training sequence in the beginning, it's just this the way they do just these sweeping long shots where they incorporate every fighter and it's it feels like a dance. It feels like movement definitely has like that that like crouching tiger hidden dragon influence for sure. Though and and just beautiful. I mean, choreography is the word too because like I said, it, it just almost feels like. A dance, how well it flows, but you can see what's going on at all times, and just everybody's different fighting styles, you know, just having the snake fight in a certain way, the grass, and they're all different, and they're all unique and fun to watch. Even the way that the movie uses uh, various, like, you know, real artistic choices, like uh, yeah. color and, uh, you know, shapes. The, and whole, the whole 2D opening sequence is a great uh, centerpiece for that, even. Just absolutely beautiful, fascinating, and just this cold open that you're completely comes out of nowhere that's like, just, it's like, oh, we're, we're, this is something you actually didn't expect, I feel like, is how it sets the tone. Uh, yeah, so I, the end result is just this perfect little just chunk of a movie full of these really engaging characters in this, uh, you know, kind of ancient Chinese, but Westernified uh, setting that is like way more respectful and just um, it, it's it was made by people that really did love Kung Fu and really wanted yeah. to translate what they loved about these like Hong Kong style action movies or no Hong Kong style, I guess, is, uh, you know, uh, Kung Fu Chuck. style. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like gun, gun yeah, not battles. hard boiled. Um, <laughs> we did Kung, we did Hong Kong style in the Max Payne uh, remedy yes, we, episode. Yes, we did. Also, though, this really reminds me a lot of the air, last Airbender story mm-hmm. of, of of true fans of a genre t- taking you know t- essentially creating their own big love letter to that thing from a different place from a different country that they fell in love with and there's so much respect and love and what's so funny and and we'll get into why they it really starts off as an idea of like the concept of making fun like a kung pal essentially is what the executives wanted to do and then they're like no but we actually like love these movies so we're gonna go actually make like a really good kung fu movie with awesome actors and great fight sequences and just like stay true to the genre that is such a clutch move during the production of this movie by the way because by 2008 how many tired ass fucking versions of the same like I am speaking, but it's not matching my lip syncs because sure. this is dubbed and we are in a Kung Fu movie. Ha 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 As Kung Pao, Dumb and Dumber. Like, I mean, you could just go on and on. There's so many. Yeah, exactly. That was like. I'm going to make a, a bunch of silly Bruce Lee noises. That's a joke, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And so this was such a cool, much, much more fascinating take 
on the premise that was originally presented. Uh, and, and it's a take and on the other thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, it, it completely swerved where DreamWorks was going. There's no pop culture references. There's no smash mouth. There's no yeah. uh, like winks to the camera. Like they commit to the setting, they commit to the universe and the comedy is all character driven. It's not like just, uh, you know, a winky face being like, this ain't your daddy's Disney movie. Like, uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a cool change of pace. It was like set DreamWorks down a bit of a different path after a bit of the same same over a period of time. Uh, I will say, too, this is. Uh, definitely a love letter to Wuxia. Uh, I, I, I feel like I'm not going to say it right ever, but either Wuxia, uh genre uh, of martial arts films. It literally means martial heroes. It's a genre of ch- uh, Chinese fiction centering around martial artists in ancient China, originally in the form of fantasy literature, though it was transcended to opera, film, TV, and video games, of course. Stories of this sort take back more than two thousand years so there had to be a lot of respect for culture for this thing to actually ride jake i get it we talked about the history of dreamworks animation back on the shrek episode will you allow me to do like a fast cram just in case someone was like i don't fuck with shrek i only fuck with the panda and and they're desperate to know a little bit about first of all i love this person you invented i (laughs) I want to hang out with this person that's like, I, I just fuck with the panda. Um, but obviously you should, uh, if for a deeper dive into the origins of how DreamWorks animation kind of emerged from the ether, uh, the, our Toy Story episode is a good place to start because that's like Katzenberg's uh, villain origin story. Uh, and uh, what we're talking about uh, with PDI also kind of started with... Uh, in our Shrek episode. And obviously while you're at it, uh, go on to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew and listen to all of our bonus episodes. Um, not for any particular reason. I just think they're great. Fuck it. Just throw it in there. But either way, I'll just quickly say DreamWorks Animation is co-founded by Steven Spielberg, former Disney executive Jeffrey Katzenberg, and music executive David Geffen. And they end up signing a co-production deal with this group. You already mentioned PDI, which uh, spells out Pacific Data Images, which was founded back in 1980 off of a $25,000 loan. They slowly grew just fucking with 3D computer animation to the point where they're working uh, with even with Jim Henson and his Creature Shop doing early like 3D rendered models and things like that. They are responsible for the morphing effects for Michael Jackson's black or white. Uh, Also, my favorite piece of trivia, so I just wanted to shove it in here, is that they are the ones that did that 3D Homer thing uh, segment. Mmm, erotic cakes uh, segment on The Simpsons, which is a very memorable part of my childhood in Treehouse of Horror 6. They signed a deal with them. The first feature through uh, Pacific Data Images and DreamWorks Animation was Ants in 1998, which was successful enough for uh, the founder, Carl, uh, what was it, Carl Rosendahl, to sell his remaining shares to uh, DreamWorks, and they end up just take, grabbing the ball Running down that field with it. Shrek, uh, Madagascar, what? Huge franchise. Spirit, everybody loves a fucking horse. And of course, I'm going to say very relatively few people love Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron. (laughs) But either way, we'll do our Spirit episode in 2027. But uh, before that point, let's talk about Kung Fu Panda. I briefly want to mention, just because it's a really weird uh, 
piece of trivia again. Taifu Wrath of the Tiger. This Thank is, God you're mentioning this because yes. it's such a it's so fucking weird that this. Yeah, it's bizarre. There, all right. So there's actually a similar ish game that, that was produced by Jeffrey Katzenberg back in 1999 for the PlayStation called Taifu Wrath of the Tiger. It was done by DreamWorks Interactive and uh, the protagonist was the last remaining tiger from the tiger clan. Doesn't look too different from our tigress, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, this this uh, Taifu journeys to to defeat the dragon master and avenge his kind while meeting and learning other kung fu styles from other clans along the way and just has a very similar premise vibe everything who knows if that was had any amount of uh, prototyping for kung fu fans i couldn't track down any specific like documents or like definitive proof but there's whispers in all the interviews that i read that the premise of kung fu panda was Definitely like in the works at DreamWorks for a while before they actually started producing the movie. Uh, Just, you know, uh, as a concept, there's just like whatever marketing heads and producers and studio heads were just kind of like, this seems like it'll work. This seems like a thing people would watch. Specifically, there was an executive named Michael Lachance who first had the idea, but he wanted it, as we mentioned before, to be a spoof of martial arts films. It was actually the directors that get signed on, and we'll go into their uh, previous careers up to this point in a little bit. But either way, the director, John Stevenson, had something else in mind. Stevenson said, It would have been a very easy choice to go for the kung fu parody with puns and that kind of stuff, but parodies wear out their welcome after about 10 minutes. We were trying to return to a more timeless form of storytelling. I think a lot of animated films have chosen to go with pop culture references and be very postmodern in their attitude. We wanted a completely unique world that you'd never been to before that had its own rules that didn't reference anything from today. Whatever, dude. Not another teen movie. I watch that like once a year. It is (laughs) fundamental to comedy. Yeah, no, I agree. I love that comment. I think that's so true. And I love that they went in this direction. I don't think we'd be doing an episode right now if they hadn't. Stevenson also said, we love martial arts movies. I wasn't interested in making fun of them because I really think martial arts movies can be great films. They can be as good as any genre movie when they're done properly. Let's try to make it a real martial arts movie, albeit one with a comic character, and let's take our action seriously. Let's not give anything up to the big summer movies. Let's really make sure that our kung fu is as cool as any kung fu ever done so that we can take our place in that canon and make sure it's a beautiful movie because great martial arts movies are really beautiful looking movies and then let's see if we can imbue it with real heart and emotion and comedy. And, and somebody mentioned it during the stu- Sunday study sessions um, from uh, patreon.com forward slash Somebody mentioned from our Sunday study sessions how they use the genre slow motion techniques to sell comedy bits mm-hmm. in the action, which is brilliant. And, and I totally agree. And they do, do such a good job of like taking these things and u- using it as a weapon for comedy. Mm-hmm. Which is really smart. Well, I, there's a long-standing tradition of physical comedy within wuxia productions. You know, Jackie true. Chan, yeah, like revolutionized it. So using like, but they get to do things that kung fu movies could never do, which is like insane camera angles and insane sweeps and and a fighting snake. <laughs> a, a, that fighting snake was a technological nightmare i actually have uh, information <laughs> really? about that yeah i bet i mean all i mean i bet most of all that one but i mean yeah all those different animals and getting you know because 
also animal as the name of a fighting style is a big thing in those movies right of course like i know like grasshopper style i know you, you keep know. saying grasshopper but it's mantis mantis keep, style sorry i don't know i know mantis. the arms because the arms are the arms. all foldy exactly uh either way uh, <laughs> i don't know what's going on these days i'm a confused man but either way yeah i know mantis style i know this or whatever but they're actually able to like have the animals do it which is really really fun yeah, I mean, the the Furious Five are like the five most well-known uh, animal Shaolin Kung Fu styles. Like, yeah, crane style, tiger style, monkey style. Even And this is something I just like this afternoon read uh, in a, as I was cramming last minute for info that uh, there is a lesser known leopard style. And mm. that's why they decided to make Tai Lung a snow leopard. The snow leopard, which is great. Great enemy, too. And uh, fantastically done. Wait, who's the voice again for Ian for McShane. Ian McShane kills it. Oh, and that's the thing. I I forgot because of how just how many fucking crazy talented people do voices on these movies. But like uh, Tai Lung is maybe one of my favorite villains in an animated movie because uh, the way he's introduced in this giant mountainous supermax prison with that like crazy turtle shell and the shackles and how he escapes and like does all, you know, people are like flying everywhere. He's like just this beast of power and rage. And then he like emerges out and finally he's just like, ah, yes, I will be the one dragon warrior. <laughs> like, and then yeah, he's yeah, like yeah. beneath all that power. He's like, uh, there's a sophistication behind it. And the more you learn about his story, like, you know, he's what every, you know, creative writing 101 uh, teacher will tell you that the best villains are the people that think they're the hero in their story. And Tai Lung's motivations are like clearly laid out. He clearly, you know, they express the emotions behind what he's feeling, why he feels entitled to what he's doing. And uh, compared to later movies where, you know, we mentioned Gary Oldman's Scary Peacock, where he's yes. just like, I'm Gary Oldman, and I love murdering. <laughs> I love murdering, and I just, ooh, I just hate it when I can't murder. Spoiler alert, Jake's not a, a huge fan of the uh, sequel, but uh, I will I will help defend it uh, if you are a sequel. It's defendable. Lover. I'm just weird. I understand this. <laughs> no, I actually agree with what you said, but we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But either way, well, going back to inspirations, I also just want to briefly mention the film is more so inspired by fucking, if you haven't seen this movie, you need to put this in your veins tonight after you watch Kung Fu Panda, the 2004 movie Kung Fu Hustle, a mm. Chinese action comedy directed by Stephen Chow, who played the lead and is about a murderous neighborhood gang and a poor village with unlikely heroes. It just ama amazingly blends the genre of comedy and which into something pretty special. And I definitely would say that Shaolin Soccer, of course, as well. These are so, so much fun, great action comedy films. Either way, the script was co-written by Jonathan Abel and Glenn Berger. They are a writing team who did did everything together as a, as a pair, starting out uh, on staff for The George Carlin Show. Later, they wrote on King of the Hill. They have a ton of credits. And they got a special thanks in Shrek the Third, which probably means that they helped with the script, like punch, did punch-up work on the script. And I'm pretty sure that's probably what got them the job. For this, which I believe is their first big movie. They do go on, though, to write a ton Timelines of money. Timelines are a makers. little mixed up. I don't think I think they had to punch up Shrek 3 because they did a good job on Kung Fu. Oh, OK. OK. I would believe that as well. So I don't know how they got this gig, but either way, this, this was their first big movie. But then they go on. They do the SpongeBob movie. They do the Trolls movies like these dudes yeah. are motherfucking millionaires at this point doing like epic animated, you know, computer animated uh, comedy 
drama scripts or whatever for for kids. But either way, let's talk about our directors real quick. Two fascinating guys that mm-hmm. each kind of uh, they're like one is like uh, 14 years older than the other one. And they kind of represent two different eras of like imagineering. So it's kind sure. of like bringing them together was actually like really clutch. And I think. Uh, secures what makes this movie so timeless. Agreed, agreed. So we'll start with John Stevenson. He actually gets his start on The Muppet Show back in the early 80s. He was also an uncredited storyboard artist on The Great Muppet Caper, and he worked on other films such as Labyrinth, The Dark Crystal. Uh, It makes sense because uh, The Muppet Show and uh, several of The Muppet movies were filmed in England, and John Mm. Stevenson is a Brit. So it would have been, you know, for just a weird kid growing growing up in the countryside, like dreaming of making movies, having the Muppet production actually take place outside of London was like a huge opportunity to get a foothold in this wider showbiz world. Yeah, he also did work on Little Shop of Horrors. Then he moved into TV on design teams on animation shows like The Dreamstone and Count Duckula, which actually brought back memories. I'm pretty sure I liked Count Duckula quite a bit. A Count Duckula episode in 2020. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack. And save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses. Plus, updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In interviews, Stevenson talks about how uh, he got his start at DreamWorks working in the story department, which is where, uh, you know, kind of the storyboards and the pacing and the scene breakdowns are kind of like iterated and iterated and iterated upon because the animation process is so laborious and kind of way harder to amend once you actually get the ball rolling. So the story department kind of basically plots out everything, gets the animatics all down and like kind of refines the movie into what it is before sending it off to the animation department. He also helped with the art design and the um, uh, lighting department. So like he's definitely responsible for like the fee- the aesthetic feel of the film more so than our other guy. Also, just because I thought this was a weird project, he he uh, worked on Father of the Pride, a computer animated oh made a TV show about Siegfried and Roy's tigers. And I think that's what largely brought him to DreamWorks. That was a DreamWorks project. But I just yeah. think that was I saw like a tra- the trailer for it. I was like, what the fuck is this? You have to <laughs> understand in the 2000s, CG was the future of everything. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is listed as the creator of this sitcom about a talking family of uh of Siegfried and Roy Lyons uh, was like, what if sitcoms, hear me out, 
were incredibly expensive to produce and, here's the catch, not very funny. (laughs) And unfortunately did not last a long time. But at least it did lead to him getting his first feature film as a director with Kung Fu Panda. Then there's Mark Osborne, studied foundation art at Pratt Institute in New York and got his Bachelor of Fine Arts in Experimental Animation from the California Institute of the Arts. Wait a minute. In 1992. The 1992 class of experimental animation degrees at CalArts? Why does that sound familiar? Oh, yeah. That's the same class where Steven Hillenberg, the creator of SpongeBob, learned to animate. Hell yeah, dude. I guess Uh, they were classmates and had worked together several times. Yes, and that actually is what leads him to be the dude. So if you saw a live action sequence in SpongeBob, in the movie, on the TV show, that's this guy. He did, like, all of that stuff for the most part. I believe the majority of, if not all of. Before that, though, his thesis film, Greener, won several awards and got a lot of festival attention. And I love this, another fun little trivia fact. uh, Before that, his other credit is on the Weird Al Jurassic Park music video, which used that stop-motion claymation. He put that together with a dude named Scott Nordland in a makeshift studio in L.A., and that made me go rewatch that music video, which gave me a bunch. And then I was like, wait, shit, did we do an episode of Weird Al Yankovic? And then I was like, oh, yeah. We definitely did an episode on Weird Al Yankovic. That's where I'm at, Jake. He also did the animated opening with that same team. He did the animated opening for the short-lived Weird Al Saturday morning TV show. Oh, nice. But uh, yeah, he was a uh, stop motion guy. And uh, do you have stuff about Moore? Because holy shit, no, Moore. I do know it, that Moore was one of his credits. Is that a sh- That's a short film. This is a short film. And as an animation nerd in the 2000s, this thing was everywhere uh it was uh used as a music video for some band that like got it aired on like you know the weird hours on mtv uh but it is a scathing uh uh, commentary on on uh capitalist ennui about how uh, products can't make us happier damn it uh but it is one of the only stop motion animated features ever uh filmed on imax so it, it has this crazy detailed look and just this brooding, uh, just overwhelmingly harsh, depressing soundtrack taken from a Joy Division song. And cool. you can find it on YouTube. It is one of the landmark uh, modern-ish claymation shorts ever made. You're so right, though, talking about these different lineages. And it's so clear that, you know, he got his degree in experimental animation. And he is that. I think he brings that element to this, like thinking outside the box and, and, and creating animations and things, which I think this movie capitalizes on. Yeah, he worked more closely with the animation department and making sure that, you know, the right emotions were delivered and that uh, individual character performances worked out right and that uh, the voice actors dialogue came out right and, you know, that everything kind of once the story beats were done, that it was delivered properly was kind of where it was split. Because, again, the story department and the animation department are two way different teams with way different expertises and different challenges. Uh, A lot of hit animated films uh, rely on two directors, um, uh, several Pixar movies, several, uh, you know, Frozen uh, famously had two directors. So it's just, you know, so much work has to go into these things uh, technologically, manpower wise creatively that like uh, you you pretty much need two directors to get it done efficiently to the point where technically you could argue there are three directors and that is a good segue for us to talk about this opening 
which is directed by Jennifer Yu Nelson, came out of South Korea. If, if you if you are yet to see the movie, there's this really cool 2D animation opening. It has like very much of a Samurai Jack vibe to it. It just has a great distinct look. Really, really cool. It brings you into the movie in a really cool way. And this was done by her. She came out of South Korea. And she moved to America when she was four years old. She enjoyed film from an early age, including especially martial arts movies. You said, I've been drawing since age three and making movies in my head for almost as long. In fact, drawing for me was a way to express those films when I had no other means of doing so. And in college, she discovered that she could have a career in animation, which took her to Hanna-Barbera Productions and then Cartoon Network. Of course, that's the natural. They actually they arrest you as soon as you say out loud you want to be an animator. And they put you in a cell at Hanna-Barbera Productions until someone unlocks you and takes you to Cartoon Network is essentially how it works for early young animators. So she ends up going from Cartoon Network doing uh, storyboard artist stuff on the HBO Spawn series. <laughs> Shout outs to the Spawn episode. Woot woot. Uh, either way, though, she joined DreamWorks in 1998 and was also the head of story on Kung Fu Panda as well. She will end up directing its, sequ uh, its sequel as well as well. Another, if we're just naming key production people that had an effect on this movie, uh, I want to shout out a French-American animator, Nico Marlet, who did a, basically the lion's share of the character design, this kind of like rounded, bubbly, cartoonish kind of feel. Um, he went on to then do uh, character designs like the dragons on how to train your dragon, a bunch of stuff for uh, the Kung Fu Panda sequels. And uh, before that, he even worked on B-movie Over the Hedge, Madagascar. And uh, he actually got his start as an animator on Disney afternoon shit like DuckTales and Tailspin. Nice. Uh, if you look on uh, his uh, Art of Nico Marlet Tumblr, you can see tons of original sketches and uh, all the influence that went into these designs. Uh, another guy is uh, Dan Wagner, who was the character animator on Poe, who uh, in the director's commentary, Osborne and Stevenson both shout him out repeatedly on kind of evoking this very specific performance in conjunction with Jack Black that kind of shifted Poe, uh, the panda, from like this brash, like Bart Simpson-y character to like this kind of insecure but enthusiastic, really empathetic, lovable character that really uh, elevates the movie, I feel. A couple other big names to mention are production designer Raymond Zyback and art director Tang Hang. They took influences from martial art films such as Hero, House of Flying Daggers, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. These are all modern additions to the Wuxia genre. They did years of research. The movie has a ton of subtle references to kung fu movies. Uh, for example, there's a sign at one point written in Chinese that translates to Dragon Gate Inn, which is a reference to a Wuxia movie from the 60s called Dragon Inn. They studied Chinese painting, sculpture, architecture, and kung fu films as well. Um, and then uh, also they worked with um, Jennifer Yu uh, for that opening sequence, to go back to that briefly. And they ended up sending over essentially a developed, they developed the style, they laid out the sequence, and they sent it to James Baxter Animation to execute mm. the actual animation. Baxter's first big movie was his animator on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's led to several gigs for Disney, including the character animator on The Little Mermaid and supervising animator on Beauty and the Beast before moving over to DreamWorks to work on Spirit and Shrek 2, after which he opened his own studio for a brief time, and that was done through that. Producer Hamid Shalkot said, 
James Baxter tackled the animation in unique ways. In one shot, he would hand draw the animation completely from start to finish. In another, he would do just a few drawings that were then manipulated in After Effects. In addition, all the effects animation consisted of traditional hand-drawn effects, as well as digitally manipulated elements from the original Photoshop files. Can you tell which is which? Being the master animator that Baxter is, the merging of the two is seamless. It helped keep the crew to only 12 people. If you are an animation nerd, that opening sequence is an incredible uh, display of how you can, like, utilize what uh, nerds will call limited animation, which is, you know, literally just telling the computer, move this shape here and hand drawn, you know, drawing by drawing traditional animation uh, to the point where it's like it's honestly jaw dropping. If you really like take, you know, slow it down, they do so many Clever little things. Um, it's very, very cool. In the, I think now you can see them on Netflix, but in the tie-in, like, Secrets of Kung Fu Panda specials, they do a lot of 2D animated segments in that James Baxter, Baxter developed style. And it really is effective for, yeah. like, cinematic quality, but limited budget animation. In terms of the world itself, Stevenson said, it's not a particular time period, but down to the details of roof shingles and water buckets and the tables and the cutlery, we did a lot of research to make sure that there was nothing in terms of the architecture or the references that would be incorrect. We're asking people to buy a lot of big, crazy stuff in the film. And to do that, they need to accept that the baseline for the world is honest and genuine and credible. And I think that that is, uh, you could say the same sentence when it comes to Jack Black's acting and it comes to just the heart in general in this movie. If this movie didn't have the heart that it had and the emotional depth and just the absolute attention to detail to and, and respect for the culture, I, th I think it would just not be anywhere near as successful. And I think that is what what's make what makes this movie special enough to do a Wizard the Bruiser episode on it. Uh, can we talk about Kung Fu fighting? I can't do CeeLo as well as you. Uh, just, just throw it in the nose. Just get it a little bit higher. Like you were making fun of it, but it's actually, that was actually a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah, I think one of the big draws of this movie, and we get it later with, um, like what Kubo and the six strings and stuff like that. But I feel like this was a, an early version of like killer badass fight sequences. I'm sure you could name me other movies that came before it, but it really does stand out here. As an anime, as an anime nerd, as a martial arts nerd, as an animation nerd, I remember being in the theater kind of like being thrown back at like how much cool shit was happening on screen where like every little movement, every little exchange of blows had like actual thought behind it and like yes. a cause and effect and an interesting movement behind it. And it yeah. was like, Oh, oh shit, is this like what CG animated action scenes could be? Yeah. This is amazing. Really cool. And, and, and it makes sense that this anecdote, when the head of production handed the script to VFX supervisor Marcus Manninen, she reportedly laughed and wished him good luck. <laughs> Manninen said, when we started talking, the movie was still a high concept. But for everyone that looked at it, it screamed complexity. We launched off say, saying, how can you make this movie tangible? How can you find smart ways to bring this world to life in a way that makes it a great movie and not feel like the complexity becomes the driver of the story, but the story and the emotion being the driver? John Stevenson said, we didn't want it to look like human beings wearing animal costumes. We had to imagine how each character would do Kung Fu based on the physio uh, physiognomy of the animal itself. And I think that is the perfect quote for what to me makes this so awesome. Like the snake is 
so different and and so a snake in the fighting style than the mantis. Finally, I said it right, and 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 so on and so forth. Okay, so for example, the the snake I think is a great standout of like all the complexities and things that uh, had to go into the creation of this movie. There is an article on CG Society that was uh, deleted and you have to go into like the, uh, you know, way back machine internet archive to actually like get it done to actually read it. But um, most standard animation programs are based on, uh, you know, you have the model and then you have the rig and uh, the rig is usually like a humanoid form and the software is built to understand like this is an arm, this is a leg, you know, the muscles are connected this way. Like this is how movement works. Viper, the Lucy Liu character, does not have arms. It is a completely unique creature that has to move like a snake in this environment. So uh, from the CG Society article, uh, this is uh, Dan Wagner, the animator, uh, from his perspective. Wagner and his team had their work cut out for them. Just posing Viper took a long time to do. We had 13 points on her, and you could lock any of those points to global space but then we had to have it locked mm. while still moving it on a path. Uh, the powerful rig had a massive learning curve. They could only animate her on a path. They could not separate the snake from the path and then animate separate behaviors. There were a lot of hoops we had to jump through to get certain movements correct. Obviously, it was easier if we just had a close-up of the Viper, just the headshot. Uh, then we could strictly use that. But it was a very heavy rig. So, like, to get the computer to understand that, like, the snake is attached to what it's crawling on to get it to understand that, like, you know, the tail is connected to the when the head moves, the tail has to move like this. You know, they had to build that completely from scratch. They used what was a PDI and then DreamWorks proprietary system called the uh, Emotion Software or Emo for short. That was originally developed like in the 80s when all they needed to do is like the flying CG logo for Entertainment Tonight. That same software is used to make this movie. They uh, This is another just technical workaround they had to work on. Uh, they added a feature to the panda's large belly to make sure that his arms and legs didn't collide with him. Uh, the belly actually acted like a gas-filled bag. So if an arm is pushed into the body, the belly would shift away. There's no way we could animate this character without having his arms and legs pushing his fat out of the way. Uh, for some scenes, we would inflate or deflate him as uh, as the scene needed. Otherwise, he would look too fat. <laughs> That's, uh, I, I love I love all of that, Jake. It just goes to show that the the issues you never think about when it comes to stuff like this, for sure. Also, the, some of the truth in the fighting is due to the animators taking a six hour long kung fu class, but more so to hiring this guy Rodolphe. Gwynedin, who is a storyboard artist as well as a martial arts practitioner to supervise. Stevenson said he understands Kung Fu and how it works on the anatomy. Gwynedin uh, would sketch out the fights first in 2D. Stevenson said he was able to show people how a particular movement would go. It was a very in interactive process, and if we didn't have Rudolph, I don't think we'd have been able to do it. Uh, also, uh, Stevenson said this about animating fighting animals. The crane is individually feathered. The snake required a huge amount of technical R&D, as 
Jake mentioned already, and innovation to make her fully rigged and capable. Then we had furry characters wearing clothing, which is very complicated interaction. And we had them doing kung fu. The rigs, the things that make the characters move are much more complicated than the rigging in any other movie. And it's just so amazing they pulled it off. And so it really does like look like a ton of work was put in to all of those amazing scenes like the one on the bridge or the jailbreak scene and whatnot. Uh, but either way, uh, that's all I have on the fighting animation and that kind of stuff. Can we talk about this crazy fucking cast? Uh, one more. This is just gibberish. Please. I don't even understand what this article is talking it. about because it was meant me. for like other CG artists. I'll try to decipher it. The pinnacle of the film is when Tai Lung fights the Furious Five on a decaying rope bridge, a scene that involved character animation, effects animation, and everything intertwined. They had to find a way of procedurally breaking geometry and to be able to describe the fighting action, so they used a procedural break technique that was art-directable called procedural fracking. Oh my god, this is gibberish. Um, <laughs> Keep, I want to throw it down. So maybe Lawrence can... Lee developed a method where we had an unfractured original model we could paint on top of, designing the break pattern for the pieces. Then we created cutting volumes by creating a voxel grid around the unfractured model. It then voxelized based on the painted colors. Based on cellular automated techniques, you grow the regions until all the voxels are filled in. Then you convert that to polygon meshes using marching cube algorithms. Then you use the unfractured model to convert the texture coordinates to have the texture continuity through the breaking. You then use those polygonal meshes as a constructive solid geometry algorithm to create the final debris pieces. Hell what? yeah. Hell what yeah, does dude. that? That's not English. Dude, you can see it take a hit of this and you'll understand everything <laughs> that dude just said. Dude, you ever get so high you understand <laughs> voxelized polygonal meshes? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Uh, all right. So I'm not, honestly not going to spend a ton of time in this cast because, A, I think I'll go a lot deeper on Jack Black when we do a uh, Tenacious D episode, for example, or something like that. Uh, we, we know who he is, but I will give a brief rundown of, of cat, some cast. Uh, according to my uh, according to my viral algorithms, we're actually due for a school of rock. Uh, nostalgia I also, bump. I also really want to do School of Rock, actually. I love School of Rock. Uh, but either way, before we get to that, I'll just say about Jack Black, who plays Poe, the Kung Fu Panda himself. He was born and raised in California. He was the son of a satellite engineers. His parents divorced when he was 10 and ended up moving, that moved him to Culver City. He appeared as a child in a commercial for uh, the Activision game Pitfall back in 1982, which is uh, I think on we, YouTube. We, we covered that in our uh, Activision episode. Yes, hell yeah, we did. So go check that out. It's totally on YouTube, and it's really funny, and it's a super young Jack Black. Uh, also, we talked about we, we talked about him. He's the bully in the NeverEnding Story, too. NeverEnding uh, Story 3, specifically. Th- 3, yeah, my bad. Uh, he went to UCLA for college and was a part of a theater troupe called the Actors Gang, but which is, ooh, could you imagine the scary actors gangs? With their leather jackets and their vocal warm-up. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot 
for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But he dropped out his sophomore year and he got into showbiz. After that, he appeared at various shows like my favorite Scott show of all time, Mr. Show, and The X-Files, and then movies like Demolition Man and Cable and The Cable Guy. He considers, and I would also consider, his breakout to be across John Cusack in the film High Fidelity, which was, I think, the first time he was put on the map for me personally. And that this gained him a ton of status as, like, the crazy co-worker who was, like, singing songs and being nuts and uh, kind of gave him that as a gimmick at first a lot, too. Also, he uh, ends up starring in movies like the hilariously outdated Shallow Hal. We were talking about earlier. Did I mention this in the episode or was this before the episode where we were? We, this was during just our pre-recording chit chat. But feel free to feel free to say this again. Uh, just just that I think that this movie does a couple things. It pulls a couple things off that other movies don't. And one of those is that there is a ton of fat jokes in Kung Fu Panda. But for some reason, it doesn't seem like it's totally eye rolling and outdated like the fucking almost impossible to watch shallow Hal at this <laughs> point. It's like so bad in that movie with the fat stuff, but they handle it in a certain way here where Jake, you made a joke about it, but I feel like there might've been some truth to quote feeling seen during the stress eating uh, moment in the film. There is, I I'll just fucking say it. Um, I being overweight has been something that's been like a rolling kind of conflict in my entire life. And uh, the, Level, like the way they kind of uh, show Poe's like uh, overeating is in a very relatable way. They actually like flat out say, you know, like, oh, you eat when you're distressed. Like, why are you distressed? Um, There's scenes where he's like sneaking out in the middle of the night to get cookies. Uh, Half of the fat jokes aren't even like people just being like, hey, get a load of lard ass. It's actually like. Poe himself, Jack Black, again, delivering a really great vocal performance, kind of making self-deprecating jokes. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a scene, um, a very uh, emotional scene where, uh, you know, the team finds out that Tai Lung has escaped and that uh, an important character is not going to be able to join them during that fight. And uh, Jack Black is caught, like, making fun of Dustin Hoffman's character, Shifu, But, like, if you actually listen, this is in the uh, director's commentary. Stevenson points out that if you listen carefully, he's actually making fun of himself. He's Mm -hmm. using Shifu as the vehicle, but he's being extremely self-deprecating. One of the great things about Jack Black's performance is that he's never lashing out at anyone but himself. It's a consistent thing that he does. And, uh, of course, then that leads to our uh, famous joke, the boob bowls. Um, the big and then Osborne says the biggest laugh in the movie is the boob bowls. <laughs> Osborne then says uh, the sustained laugh would go on and on, much to our surprise. Stevenson says we test screened that for kids and kids went nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I love commentaries, man. They're the best. But, but way- it is it is uh, the fat jokes and the eats too much jokes are displayed as kind of with a very empathetic heart. It is not like yeah. from a position of pure meanness. Yeah, agreed. And and there's like a big love for for the character and and a lot and an emotional depth as well, which I think again allows us to be able to laugh with a little bit more than laugh at. Uh, they, he was It's a ju- very Oh, I'm so, I I just I, my thoughts are racing cuz we're talking Please. about uh fat, fat people stuff. stuff. <laughs> 
finally, it's Jake's time to sh- <laughs> oh, <laughs> shut. Uh, I ran out of breath. Oh God. Okay. No. Um. The one of the the emotional turnaround of the movie is when, uh, in this dire moment where all seems lost, uh, master and student come to understand each other, and Shifu kind of goes like, "Okay, you're motivated by food. That's who you are. I accept that. Let's move. Let's like actually train you with that." And it results in this fun training sequence where it's, you know, dumplings and cookies and all these like Chinese delicacies that are like pushing Poe to actually like get better and train. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's they they pull it off for sure. Uh, going back to Black, he was the director's first choice for the film. Stevenson said originally the character was a bit snarkier, but Jack revealed to us this, this sweet, vulnerable side. Poe became this charming, innocent, good-hearted character and revealed a side of Jack that you haven't seen in a lot of films, at least up to that point. This is the first time in an animated film that Black used his natural voice as well, which again, tapping into trying to be open and honest and true. So I think that's what made him work so well as Poe. And then you have just this ridiculous roster of talent to fill out the cast. Dustin Hoffman as Master Shifu. Ian McShane, we've already mentioned, as Ty Lon. Uh, Dustin Hoffman is amazing because he'll like... Awesome. He'll st- he'll start as stern Chinese master and then get a little Jewish. Why not? Like just like ever so slightly, the uh, hey I'm walking here guy kind of comes out. The Furious Five, of course, consists of Angelina Jolie as the Master Tigress, Seth Rogen as Master Mantis, Lucy oh Liu as Master Viper, David Cross as Master Crane, and Jackie Chan as Master Monkey. All right, let's get into this. Uh, number one, Angelina Jolie doing uh, what she... It's kind of her wheelhouse in her like totally. pop culture persona. It's like, I'm a tough, beautiful woman, and I don't need help. I'm like stern and standoffish, but oh no. Daddy issues, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. comes during the uh, they have like a nice uh, flashback sequence where they get background on Tai Lung and how it relates to Shifu and how it relates to her and how it affected their relationship. Jackie Chan barely does anything as monkey. It is. <laughs> I'm 90 percent sure they like dubbed him in post because like you can barely tell it's him. Yeah, it's funny. Like it's, and, and in the sequel, you have all everybody returning. But I, I, I was just sitting there watching. I'm like, damn, I feel like they're like barely used in this. You know what I mean? And outside of like action sequences mm-hmm. and stuff in terms of just dialogue and having conversations. But still, uh, they all kill it. I mean, you definitely can tell it's that Mantis is Seth Rogen. You can definitely hear David Cross's voice with the crane. But they all do a great job. As a 2008 comedy nerd, I was so excited to hear David Cross in this movie in the theater yeah. and then was just like, Wait, why is he just, you know, he's a very, a lot of the Furious Five end up being just kind of exposition characters. So I was like, yeah. I don't get it. Why isn't he launching into a scathing condemnation of George W. Bush? <laughs> yeah, I don't totally. understand. Seth Rogen did a lot of ad-libbing. So that's why, like, even in the movie, he does his stoner laugh. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, The character totally. is just Seth Rogen. Special shout outs to Poe's adoptive father and noodle shop owning Chinese Goose, played by James Hong. You've seen him in Chinatown. You've seen him in Airplane. You've seen him in Blade Runner. You've seen him in so much stuff because he's been in over 600 TV show and movie roles, which is insane. He is the heart of this movie, and it is incredible, uh, the relationship between, I think his character is called just like Mr. Ping. Yeah. But like, there is so much love. Um, The conflict where like, uh, you know, Poe loves Kung Fu and uh, his dad wants him to help him in the noodle shop isn't one born from like sternness. It's one born from like love and not wanting to disappoint someone. 
It's like really heartfelt. He got me in the feels in the second one. I was like, damn, all right. And now I'm sad as fuck for this goose. Uh, this is uh, from the uh, another one from the director's commentary. This blew me away. Uh, Osborne talking over the scene where we meet Mr. Ping uh, is why? Why is Post Dad a goose? A lot of people came out of the screening asking that question. For us, it was just a hilarious thing that one of our story artists came up with. Alfred Gimeno. He always threw out these big, wacky ideas. At one point, he had posed dad as a goose, and it was hilarious, so we ran with it. And I think that's, like, amazing. I am I love in the first movie that they never address it to the point where, like, the movie is almost, like, going, like, fuck you. Why do you care why his good dad's a goose? It's a movie. And then it just becomes, uh, that becomes, like, the storyline for the next two movies, essentially. Which I don't like as much, <laughs> and one of the reasons why I'm underwhelmed by the sequels. We'll I think it's way it. funnier, or it's just like, it's a cartoon animal universe. Like, yeah, who cares? Yeah, it's just silly, silliness. But either way, also another shout-out to Michael Clark Duncan, played, uh, was in Armageddon, Sin City, a ton of stuff you've recognized him in. He plays that Rhino Warden and Rest in Peace. Uh, Mr. Duncan, but uh, another quote from Stevenson, which I really enjoyed about the whole cast situation. We realized we had to ask the audience to buy into talking animals in ancient China, so the acting had to be very real. If the characters moved in a way that was too cartoony, you wouldn't understand the change-up. So even though we had these cute animal characters, we tried to make them act in a very real and genuine way when they weren't doing kung fu. So even though they had them very much as animalistic as possible in the fighting, when they were uh, not fighting. It was like, how do we make them as human as possible, in a sense, uh, to sell the whole thing, which I think is a really interesting challenge. And I think they totally pull it off. Uh, another um, great performance in this movie is from Randall Duck Kim, who is a Korean American actor who plays the uh, old, wise old sensei, uh, Master Ugwe. Sensei's uh, yeah. Japanese. Please don't attack me. I understand. <laughs> He was like, you know, being, uh, he was in Tora, Tora, Tora. He was in uh, so many movies. He was, you'll know him best as the key maker from The Matrix uh, Reloaded. Mm. Uh, when you were like, hey, why is the key maker played by a different actor? Uh, is it because the uh, original actor died? Randall Duck Kim in that movie is like, no, sometimes I uh, change forms because of computers. It's fine. Don't think about it. <laughs> He also played Grandpa Gohan in Dragon Ball Evolution. He, uh, oh, no, hell yeah. To hell yeah, take backs. But either way, uh, wanted to just briefly mention the sa soundtrack because it's done by Hans Zimmer. Boom. Yep, that's right. Inception as fuck Hans Zimmer, who made those bwoms happen in every movie trailer since. He is known for scoring films such as The Lion King, The Dark Knight Trilogy, and of course, we already mentioned Inception. He went to China to study the culture and music form, and he ends up meeting up with the Chinese National Symphony in order to do just that. He also worked with a composer named John Powell on parts of the score. He did scoring for Shrek as well as How to Train Your Dragon, uh, the whole series, among many others, and they worked as a team on that. I believe they come back for both sequels. Then there's the end credit cover of Kung Fu Fighting performed by CeeLo Green and Jack Black. Oh, Which is funny because I remember we were watching it in the study group and I was like, why well, think it's CeeLo Green? CeeLo Green sounds just like Jack Black. And then I, that might have actually just been Jack Black's. <laughs> but still, it was weird to me that they did that. But of course, you know, fuck you. Uh, either way. That's a fun sound. It's a great score. Fun, fun, uh, fun cover of Kung Fu Fighting. 
Uh, wanted to give a quick special shout out as well to the video game Kung Fu Panda. It's a third person action game. It was released in 08 on all consoles and PC and Mac. And it was surprisingly good, just like the movie. Kind of surprised people. There are four other games. The sequel to the first one. There's also a virtual world online game and a game that follows the film sequel and a fighting game, which didn't we talk about this on during the session? I think we speculated about a fighting game, but actually there is Kung Fu Panda uh, showdown of legendary legends. They did actually make and I have no idea who played that, but I certainly did it. So either way, Uh, I want to move on to the sequels, Jake. But do you have anything else before we do this? Before we delve into this dark sequels, the weirdly dark sequels. I have a sloppy pile of quotes and notes that I will not be able to successfully navigate uh, in time for this to actually be useful. So, (laughs) no. (laughs) All right, cool. Uh, All right, let's talk about the sequel and why Jake hates it, despises it to the point where he's actually tried to get them unmade. Very it's one of the most popular animated movies of all time, and I would be struggling against the... It would be like trying to fight the coming tide. I, I, I will fail. So this time, Jennifer Yu Nelson, who we mentioned, who, who did the opening sequence and was the story head of story for Kung Fu Panda the first, ends up, they, she ends up taking the helm on directing the sequel. And it is, again, everybody comes back. Let's just say that. The script is, again, written by uh, Abel and Berger with, uh, weirdly enough, Charlie Kaufman consulting on the screenplay early on in the process. That's right, Charlie Kaufman of Schenectady, New York, and uh, Adaptation fame helped them out with Kung Fu Panda 2. Fascinating. Everyone returns from the previous cast, but you do have some cool additions, such as Gary Oldman as Lord Chin, Michelle Yao as Soothsayer, Danny McBride as Wolf Boss and Jean-Claude Van Damme as Master Croc. Always got to get that Van Damme in there. Love it. At one point, the Master Croc does a dumb split for no reason. And that's only funny if you're like, oh, wait, I guess that makes sense. I was wondering why he had a Belgian accent. That's probably (laughs) Jean-Claude Van Damme. Because it's not like anyone's going to be like, oh, shit, is that Jean-Claude Van Damme? Just hearing his voice. I literally until just now forgot he was in the movie and I just watched it like a little while ago. (laughs) So. Mm. In preparation, the production team went to the city of Chengdu, which is considered the, quote, panda hometown. And that's why I'm going to get a ticket. They got to see real pandas at the giant panda research center. They also got to hold a month old panda cub named A. Bao, which inspired the baby Poe moment in the movie. And that baby Poe is a delight, Jake Mm. Young. Absolute delight. Yeah, they bring back that 2D animation style for the flashbacks to... uh, what they uh, just casually introduce as a panda genocide. <laughs> yeah, that's th- this movie is weirdly dark, like weird, like over the top dark. I mean, there's there's yeah, wiping out of entire panda villages. There's this really sad element of our lovable goose father being crestfallen as what any adopted child would eventually end up doing, getting curious about who their real biological parents are. Uh, or rather not real and and going out to find them and it's like made me bummed out like there were legitimately (laughs) points in this movie that made me bummed out and uh i was very taken off guard but at the same time uh we did quite enjoy it uh my wife and i we think it's one of the best movies ever made to be honest with you and um i think everybody in the world should be forced to see it by the government Jay. Uh, there's lots of really great <laughs> moments in there, uh, specifically the I'm thinking about the scene in the uh, I forgot what they call it, but like 
Konglon city. Um, I hope that wasn't a swear word in Mandarin. <laughs> um, uh, where they're running around in a stylized kind of uh, monster costume like you see in Chinese New that Year That was parades. fun. That whole stealth sequence was pretty fun. Yeah. I love it. They were, they were like, what was the joke where he's like, oh man, yeah, stealth mode. Not one of my best modes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's still, uh, the use of color is very strong with like... Uh, the inner peace greens and blues of Poe, like coming to terms with his family, contrasting with uh, Gary Oldman's evil fiery reds uh, that, you know, is very well done. Uh, they talk about in the second movie director's commentary, uh, you know, the clash of fire and water of violence and inner peace that kind of permeates the whole movie. I just, yeah, I just really think the, the a, no, I don't think it was that big of a deal that like, why is Poe the only panda? Because we don't see any other cranes. We don't see any other tigers. We don't see any other mm. mantises. Mm-hmm. Like that's within the rules of the universe. It's fine that there's just one of one animal. Right. And the, uh, yeah, the, the joke, just the cute kind of like hominess of just like, yeah, wait, why is his dad a goose? I guess he was adopted. That's the story. It's like, I feel like it doesn't need to be the core of the entire movie. And lastly, Michelle Yeoh does a great job as the goat soothsayer character, mm-hmm. but she introduces one of my least favorite tropes in all of screenwriting, which is everything is happening because someone did a prophecy and everyone's mad at the prophecy and trying to fight the prophecy right. and everything is happening because the because prophecy they're said doing that. Yeah. And, and everything they're doing to fight back is just clearly going to make the prophecy happen. Yeah. And the yeah, whereas in the first movie, the every all the conflict has its basis in character. These are people these are animal people that had specific wants and specific uh things they needed to accomplish and they are coming to a head in a confrontation. I will say a lot of the landscapes and architecture in the film was inspired by Mount uh King Chang, a famous Taoist mountain as it is one of the birthplaces of Taoism and also a home to pandas and I think also was the inspiration for that inner peace theme that is happening throughout the film and uh it it it, it hits some you know there's some great action scenes there are some really fun different types like I said like a stealth scene there's a little bit of a switch em up from the last one. There's some side. There was definitely points where I laughed out loud, and it it, it definitely moved and flowed. And um, but I but it is funny talking to you, Jake, after the fact. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, I guess the villain, main villain, didn't really have enough of a motivation. Or these are things I wasn't quite thinking about. And I do kind of like when when movies, especially for kids, like go to rough territory. But yeah, maybe a little too much of that, or maybe just like that's not what this franchise necessarily is. But don't worry, Jake. There's probably going to be three more movies, and we have after. I mean, there's already several tie-in TV shows, including. Oh uh, my god! How many tie-in fucking or just every? There's five short films, two different TV series. There's so much. If you want a panda that does kung fu, fucking turn on the TV. It's somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's in one of those apps. Uh, at one point during uh, between Kung Fu Panda 2 and 3, uh, Katzenberg actually sets up a Shanghai-based animation studio that does a lot of work uh, on these movies. And they eventually get bought out by a Chinese state-controlled financial firm. 
and now like make uh, primarily animated movies for the Chinese market. Well, I will say, though, about that, it's called it was established in 2012. It's called Oriental DreamWorks. And it was set up as a partnership between DreamWorks they Animation. They quickly lost that name. They, they realized that was that not the I best was reading, name. I was reading that and I was like, is this okay? I was like looking around in my apartment, like <laughs> <laughs> trying to find somebody to be like, seriously? They're calling it that? <laughs> so anyways, okay, cool. They dropped that name. Good. But either way, um, it was a partnership between DreamWorks Animation and Chinese companies. And therefore, one third of the third movie is actually made in China. They finally like brought it all the way full circle to actually get a lot of it made there. Uh, speaking of Kung Fu Panda 3, Jennifer Yu Nelson returns to direct a script done again by Abel and Berger. Alessandro uh, Carloni is a co-director, though, with Jennifer Yu Nelson. He was animation supervisor, story artist, and tradition uh, tradition animator on the first film and story artist on the second and just was brought in to get that co-director energy they got on the first film. Uh, and again, everybody's back. Oh, quick dumb fact that I just is kind of interesting is... Uh, uh, Jennifer Yunesson, um actually had held the record as the highest grossing female solo director uh, for Kung Fu Panda 2 up until uh, Wonder Woman came out. Oh, wow. So like that was a weird. T- and then she uh, technically Frozen had a female co-director and like the title gets a little wibbly wobbly. Gotcha. But gotcha. It, yeah. Up until Patty Jenkins, like it was a. Kung Fu Panda 2 was the most successful female-directed movie of all time. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, I can see that. And, uh, again, uh, with the cast for Kung Fu, Kung Fu Panda 3, uh, with the cast, they're all back. And you also have Brian Cranston as Lee Sean. J.K. Simmons as Kai. Great choice for uh, uh, voicing uh, a villain. Kate Hudson as Mei Mei. And Wayne Knight as Big Fun, Hom Lee. Uh, so... There you go. Uh, Also, 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 don't worry, folks. I mentioned it briefly a little while ago, but Katzenberg has announced he wants this franchise to be a six-movie giant epic story that continues these some of these story elements and through lines throughout. So uh, definitely look out for Kung Fu Panda 4 in theaters in 2037 is my prediction, as that's when life will return to normal, Jake. The last thing I want to touch on is the uh, very unfortunate uh, story of the uh, Massachusetts man who sued DreamWorks for uh, a copyright lawsuit alleging that they had stolen the characters and story for Kung Fu Panda from him. The uh, guy who has very big, um, this is way too deep internet, but very big Chris Chan energy had a series of like knockoff Ninja Turtle comics called like Panda Power um, that had a character that was a panda that did martial arts. They did not look very similar, but upon seeing the trailer in 2008, republished some old stories as Kung Fu Panda Power and altered the artwork to make it look a little bit more like Poe. And so he then claimed that he was the guy who created Kung Fu Panda. The uh, lawsuit went on for years. The FBI got involved. And during the course of uh, the lawsuit, uh, it was revealed that Gordon himself had traced drawings from in his comic book from a 1996 Disney coloring book about a panda. (laughs) 
That's uh, the guy was is uh, ended up getting a jail sentence for two years and had to pay back uh, a ton of the legal fees. So he got Damn. really fucked for that decision. That but uh, sucks. can't blame a guy for trying. Can't blame a guy for trying. And you can't blame a panda for learning Kung Fu. That, I believe, does it. Our episode on Kung Fu Panda, I think, if you're listening to this at the time of its release, you're probably like us and feel like we all need an escape. Honestly, all year we've wanted an escape. This is one of those movies, especially the first one. It's an absolute escape from everything and just to feel a, a slice of joy in your life. Please throw it on. I feel like 2020 has put me in the wooshy finger hold and has skadooshed repeatedly oh, all over my life. They might as well call it 20 skadoosh. <laughs> uh, unbelievable year. But either way, this was a joy to get to do this week. And we thank you so much for listening. We also thank you for your support. If you have uh, supported us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Consider it for just $5 a month. You can uh, get a weekly bonus episode from us where we chat about, you know, different things we're enjoying, video Video games wise, movie, TV wise, or we take a subject and just talk all over it, or we take a year and talk about all the games and movies and TV that's come out that year where we've been working our way through the 2000s. That's been a lot of fun. Either way, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. You can check me out on uh, Twitch Monday, Tuesday, Friday nights, nights, nights. Twitch.tv forward slash holdnators ho. Ooh, it's crazy. Jake. Follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung to hear all my thoughts and plops. Uh, I've been posting some uh, backyard bird photography. If you want to see the uh, blue jays, uh, uh, hermit thrushes, and the tufted titmice that uh, live in my backyard, check out that Twitter. I honestly do enjoy your tweets, Jake. I just want to say Thank you. Uh, Absolutely. All right. There you have it. Hey, and always remember, keep on bruising and never stop whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.